How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Back Table Podcast. So the reality is that there are some scenarios where open uh, operation is not ideal. And the pioneer work that's been done to address lower extremity disease and to address, address the pedal arch, uh, all these things are extremely important in continuing to offer patients more options when it comes to, to treatment. So as a vascular surgeon, sure, is my bias to, to be able to perform bypass? Is that an important aspect of, of, of patient care and something that we should be able to offer to our patients? 100% in that same vein, if you will. Uh, I think it's important to, to continue to push the envelope and look for opportunities where we can treat patients in a less invasive fashion and be able to still get a decent and durable result. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform or our website. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. This discussion is supported by Shockwave Medical, developer of intravascular lithotripsy, or IVL, which uses sonic pressure waves to fracture superficial and deep cardiovascular calcium. IVL is delivered on a low-pressure PTA platform and is indicated for a broad range of interventions from the iliac arteries to the pedal arch, including calcified iliofemoral vessels to facilitate large-bore access. Across multiple studies and vessel beds, IVL's intuitive platform and unique mechanism has demonstrated results that are predictably safe, distinctively intuitive, and consistently effective. Learn more at shockwavemedical.com. I'm Sabine Dond, an IR in LA, and I'm so happy to welcome the infamous and famous <laughs> sur vascular surgeon, Dr. Brian Fisher from the Surgical Clinic in Nashville. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much. You know, it's always an honor to be here. This is round number two of, I hope, uh, many visits to, you know, one of the best podcasts in, it, in its category. This is always a, a great time and I'm honored to be here. Great having you back on this show, man. I mean, last time we talked about, you know, intravascular ultrasound PAD. And we're definitely going to touch a lot back on that because today is going to be about treating calcific lesions, you know, whether synodic or occlusive in the, you know, above the knee. Speaking about that, what factors of patients that you meet, you know, in your workup, what kind of tells you that you're going to be dealing with calcium? Sure. You know, so there, there are several risk factors for the most part that we can expect that there's going to be calcified disease. The first the thing that comes to mind the most is our diabetic patients. You know, they tend to have a uh, pretty significant tibial disease, often calcified, oftentimes uh, medial calcium, which can be a little more difficult. The, the next category is end-stage renal disease. 
And then my female smokers tend to have uh, you know, quite a bit of calcium, especially in the iliac vessels, which can be treacherous, as you know. I mean, yeah. What is that about the smoking? I mean, it has a predisposition to kind of above the knee. It's, it's kind of weird. I and mean, you were saying females and iliacs, too. Yeah. You know, so for women, not that I don't discourage all my patients to find, I always tell them to find another vice uh, when they present to me with peripheral vascular disease. Yeah. But uh, in our in our female patients, their vessels are already smaller. And so, you know, you yeah. combine that, uh, you know, iliac calcified disease and they, they tend to go downhill a little bit quicker. So I'm, I'm a little more aggressive in, in talking to them about things like smoking cessation, because again, they start off with smaller luminal size anyway. So they, there's less of a tolerance for atherosclerotic disease, especially heavily calcified atherosclerotic disease. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then what about non-invasive imaging? Is there anything you prefer that really gives you an accurate sense of your calcium? Or is it really just until you, you put them on the table? No, no, that's a great question. You know, CT, uh, CT scans do a, a great job in showing calcified disease. And when they're windowed correctly, again, I've been blessed to have worked with uh, some really talented uh, radiologists, interventional radiologists in, in, during my entire career. And so, you know, one of the things I remember during my training, you know, one of the things we always said was you need to window this thing like a radiologist. And that was like a, that was a sticking <laughs> point. We weren't as yeah. good, but that was the model, you know, because you guys, of course, do it the best. So, you and know, just with click CT it scans, and go to the, the right, the upper right. There you know, window it down, upper right. <laughs> That's yeah, so easy. true. Hey. <laughs> keep but on yeah, going. once you, Couple once you can window them up, you know, and, and again, uh, it tends to overemphasize or overestimate yeah. the amount of calcium present. Absolutely. However, yeah. as you know, I like to use multiple imaging modalities. Extravascular ultrasound works are outstanding in identified, uh, identifying calcium. Now, shadowing makes it difficult to, to really understand what's going on beneath those areas. However, you can get an idea of when it's there. And then finally, you know, then, then obviously intravascular ultrasound does. Yeah, we're going to touch on that job. real soon. I mean, yep. um, you, you brought up a good point though, as far as overestimating the calcium. And I think, you know, people should be aware about that. And then, you know, the CT, you know, even if you window it down, like you're saying, like your radiologist, but <laughs> it's going to, there's going to be these blooming artifacts. And so, so it's, it's really hard to really know what you're seeing. I feel until once you put the, you know, actually get into the vessel. Right, Agreed. like put put you know your, your patients on the fluoroscopy table, and you mentioned intravascular ultrasound, right? And Absolutely, it can really tell you between, you know, the two great classifications, intimal and medial classifications. How do you differentiate between the two on IVIS? Tell us what the differences are. Yeah, so uh, again, and just being able to identify, it's important to identify from an anatomical standpoint what you typically will see in the the intima and then that medial stripe. And it becomes pretty apparent when the medial stripe is calcified. Again, it tends to be, have that white appearance. It tends to be the, a little bit thinner and it, it appears diseased, but it's almost like a perfect ring around there. So in that area where, with the infant tends to be, again, uh, that whiter appearance, you get the darker uh, media. When that media has that, that calcified portion, it typically stands out uh, quite a bit. I see. I see. And then does that change the way how you approach a lesion? I know, you know, we know that you are a big fan of intravascular ultrasound when you're doing these cases. So are you actually looking at the location of the calcium and then treating based on that? You have to, uh, in my opinion, you know, when it comes to doing definitive treatment in these patients and what you see, it's important to understand what's there and what the, what the mm -hmm. pathology is that, that you're treating. And understanding that if you have medial calcium, the ability to one, deliver drug through uh, into the media is going to be mm -hmm. a little more difficult. 
it makes it more challenging. Atherectomy may or may not have the, the same effects because you're dealing with that deeper layer. And the truth is, though, there are many, you know, there are some companies that tout some interesting things about uh, being able to treat medial calcium. We know that uh, based on post-imaging, it's an extremely difficult uh, area to mm -hmm. treat. And so yeah. that's why, you know, some emerging technologies have really been nice in, in being able to, to address this issue. Awesome. Well, uh, let's talk about it. So, you know, you have a case, you know, you have a patient and uh, what a, we'll, we'll start off with something like a severely stenotic lesion and the distal SFA pop, that, that area, right? That, that adductor canal, you just see, you'd see both intimal and medial calcifications there on IVIS. What, what is your, what is your approach to treating that? That's a, that's a great question. So my approach is one, the, the first thing I'm looking at, again, now that we've established there's intimal and medial calcium, uh, we've got a, a chance to both treat at the kind of the superficial or the inner layer, and then we have to be able to address that, that middle layer as well and be mm -hmm. able, in order to change the compliance of the vessel, some way or another, you have to be able to modify uh, that plaque, if you will. So there, there are several options that are available. There are some uh, really good atherectomy devices that can, that can address the intimal calcium, again, quite well. But the question is, once, once you get to that medial layer and once you've done some, some sort of debulking, how can you uh, change the compliance of the vessel by addressing that, that medial layer? And that can be through, again, balloon angioplasty. And I think we're, we're going to touch on a little bit later, but balloon lithotripsy uh, works outstanding uh, and is, is clinically proven on multiple levels to be able to address that, that medial layer and, again, change that compliance in the vessel. So that's kind of my approach is that I, I, I address, you know, where the calcium is. I want to know vessel diameter and then also the lesion length. Where am I going to land if I end up having to do scaffolding or if I'm doing my, whatever my definitive treatment is, whether it's drug coated balloon angioplasty or scaffolding or stenting, uh, you know, being able to go from pseudo normal vessel to, to normal vessel. Got it. Yeah. That's very important, right? You want to, you want to go from basically normal to normal as best as, or healthy to healthy as best as you can. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, okay. So you did, you mentioned that. Okay. Let, let's check back just a little bit. What is your technique to cross a severely stenotic lesion? Do you, you know, do you use 035 system and cross it again? We're talking about above the knee. Um, so I know, I know everything's different with, with tibial, but someone who has a really nice tibial runoff and really, really bad distal fem pop disease. Mm -hmm. What is your approach and technique to cross? And then, um, basically all the steps before an IVIS. Okay. So, so typically, uh, I'll start with an up and over, uh, sheath. You know, I like to have a good backbone, uh, to be able to get up and over and to help guide, uh, any kind of treatment, whether it's, you know, wires or catheters. So having mm -hmm. a sheath present, uh, and having it close to the lesion is obviously very important. Yep. Then I like to, I've learned very well from my cardiology colleagues about wire escalation. So typically I'll start off with, you know, once I get to the lesion, we'll start off with something 035 and see what, what we're uh, exactly dealing with. That proximal cap, if it's a uh, chronic total occlusion, you know, the challenges of getting through that are, are obviously uh, apparent. So we want to, we want to classify that, that cap and see whether or not we'll be able to get through it, uh, in an antegrade fashion, or if there's a retrograde option to be able to, to get through the disease process. Yeah. My colleagues, you know, Jihad and, and Fadi have really pioneered understanding what caps look like and how we can address those. And so I've really tried to model that and it's been extremely successful, uh, in doing so and being able to cross these types of lesions. Depending on the level of calcium, you know, you have to make a decision. Are you going to try and stay true lumen or are you going to go into the subindimal space? 
I often say that, you know, the, the modicum of success in the guys up in Michigan is that they were able to really establish being true learning based on extravascular ultrasound and yeah. then able to apply their treatment. I would add that if you're dealing with very heavily calcified disease, sometimes being in that subintimal space is, is easier to navigate and you can get the totally. same amount or similar luminal gain uh, by totally. being able to approach it that way. So then you know, again, wire escalation. So I usually start with a good workhorse wire. Uh, I'll try and cross with an 014 and a crossing catheter. Yep. My catheter, of course, uh, my catheter of choice is Navicross, uh, Navicross. catheter. I have no conflicts. I uh, don't work with Trumo yep. uh, in a consulting fashion at all. However, I've said this before that, that, that catheter itself has no rivals, you know, that it really, from the tapered standpoint, from its trackability and its your ability to push through these lesions in a, the least traumatic fashion, there's really no other catheter on the market that I've found that's been able to do so with quite as much ease. In addition, you can make it into a, a triaxial system with the. I was just going to ask you that. Do you do it normally or do you just go straight with 014? Do you do coaxially do it most of the time? First of all, I'm very uh, price conscious. I know that yeah. hospitals, so I have a, a dual practice, both being in the hospital and the OBL setting. And I try to be conscious, uh, you know, in both settings on what I'm spending and what can I do from the most cost efficient standpoint while still being able to tr uh, achieve success. That triaxial system can be, can be really important. However, I'll often just switch, you know, I'll go either 014 uh, workhorse or 018 uh, workhorse wire. And most mm -hmm. of the time I'm able to get through those lesions without, you know, too much difficulty. If I run into problems, then you, uh, I typically will go to a more weighted wire, uh, with a heavy gram tip and try and work my way through, uh, in that manner. Again, with the idea that for the most part, I want to try and stay true looming, uh, during my course. Then there's some other things you can do. I think that, you know, the, the advanced operators, uh, can describe, you know, when you start turning wires backwards and doing those kind of things. Which again, I would not recommend for the, uh, for the novice interventionalist. However, <laughs> for those that are experts, you know, that, I, that I've had the privilege of, of working with and observing, uh, those are real options in being able to get through these, uh, these types of lesions. So then in progressing along, once I've done my wire escalation strategy and once I've established, once I'm able to get through the lesion, which by the time you add retrograde access, I can get through about 95% yeah. of those lesions. Then, you know, it's time to switch to an 014 or 018 system and really start to understand what's going on with that vessel architecture with intravascular ultrasound. Are you normally using a, an 014 IWIS or are you using 018 or it just depends on what your wire is? I've, I've heard different things about what's better and not. We personally use 014 yes. IWIS in our practice. No, that's a great point. Uh, the 014 imaging is much better uh, than the 018 system. Now I understand that there is an 018 system that, that's come out, that's uh, since been introduced to the market yeah. Uh, that that offers some better resolution. I, I, I tend to to lean towards the 014 system because uh, you know, especially in the case where where I've gone retrograde from the from the tibials, I can have a four print sheet. Then, if I've got single wire control, I can do what I like to refer as the Edward technique, where I have an Ivis catheter coming from below, and I can do my definitive treatment and do diagnostic work from above. That that's that, cool. Therefore, I'm saving a little bit of time uh, in doing the case. Very cool. I like I like that. So then you define, you know, yeah, so now you cross and you've defined use IVIS um, and we've kind of talked about atherectomy for intimal calcifications, right? Is there any kind of specific, you know, device or, or type of device that you like um, for calcified, again, calcified intimal uh, lesions? 
You know, so that that's a great question. You know, for uh, really heavily calcified disease where I can't get devices to to track through. So you know that mm-hmm. we, we often run into problems with getting a balloon or some sort of definitive treatment yeah. through the lesion because of that that heavily calcified disease. There are a couple of devices that I like to use. Uh, orbital atherectomy works well uh, in this case in that you can kind of create that burr hole through the area and allow mm-hmm. uh, other devices to track through. I found that uh, laser surprisingly works uh, works in a decent manner in getting through those lesions and, and being able to provide uh, definitive care. I don't have much experience with directional atherectomy, uh, you know, in, in my practice, and I'm learning some newer technologies that, that may offer uh, some help, but heavily calcified disease is really kind of the last frontier and really the the thing that we're we're working so hard to be able to conquer because it makes these cases so much more difficult. Absolutely. So I agree. I mean, we our practice too. We don't have too much directional. It's 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 kind of like the devices you've already mentioned, and um, it can be a big challenge to get devices across these big coral reefs. You know that you can find in the in the SFA and pop. But after that treatment, now medial, let's, let's go down um, to medial. A- after you do your atherectomy, do you typically repeat an IVUS or do you then, you already know what you're doing, so then you're going to go to the next step? Or No, that's, a, that's actually an outstanding question. <laughs> and for those folks that have that've been in the lab with me, uh, you know, it, I'm known for breaking the IVUS catheters. They're, they're delicate little specimens, and if you use them to their, their greatest ability, sometimes they'll, they'll kind of peter out as you get towards the end of the case. I like to see what kind of luminal gain I'm getting with a particular device. And I've moved around with working uh, with some of the atherectomy devices because I really want to see, am I able to make a difference? Uh, am I doing something to the vessel based on, you know, that, that treatment algorithm? And what I found is that there, is, uh, there are varying degrees of what we describe as plaque modification that I'm able to see after I perform atherectomy. So I, I, out of curiosity, I do like to see you know, what, have I, what have I actually done, you know, with, with, with using this device. Uh, you know, there's quite a bit of controversy about, you know, the use of atherectomy yeah. in the first place. And I, I can understand that. I know that there's a ton of, uh, you know, there's some misuse out there. You probably see a lot more because, again, most people, you know, don't see what's going on in between these steps other than maybe a a, a little light angiogram, you know, okay, cool. Right. But there's so much <laughs> more, like, you know, like you're saying. And the dreaded medial calcification. Okay, so, you know, you, you, you've plaque modified the intimal area. Now, uh, we've had problems of, of treating this medial calcification like you've mentioned. Now, what, what uh, you mentioned intravascular lithotripsy, right? So what is that? It's a really exciting technology that uh, has been modified from what's been uh, done in the, urologic, uh, in the urologic world. You know, the ability to use pulses of energy uh, and almost like a, a shock wave, if you will, to uh, modify those calcified areas. With intravascular lithotripsy, you're delivering these very focal areas of energy that are, again, all the way up to, to 50 atmospheres, uh, which is an interesting concept. Yeah. If you thought about trying to take a balloon up to that, that point, you know, we'd, we'd rupture those vessels all day. That would be a, probably a bad plan. But this newer technology uh, allows the delivery of energy in an intermittent fashion, but very focal, and allows you to modify those areas. And, and that's been a really exciting newer frontier when it comes to treatment of calcium because we really haven't had anything like it uh, so far in the treatment of lower shearing disease since I've been, you know, I've been interested in, uh, in vascular surgery now for, gosh, 15 years. And so this, this is one of the first technologies to really truly come out and, and address this in a, a systematic fashion. But then you've kind of got the proof in the imaging afterwards. 
Yeah, like that's what I wanted to ask you. So, what have you seen on Ivis uh, post Shockwave? Do you see any differences? I mean, I know it's it's a low resolution of the media. You know, uh, when I see a cartoon drawing, I see a bunch of cracks in the in the in the media after a Shockwave. Is that you see anything equivalent to that? You do see something, and it, and it can be quite subtle, but if you can think of a Cheerio where you crack it in a couple of different areas, if you really go through those Ibis images slowly, you can clearly see that there's evidence of, of true cracks in the calcium. And again, there are lots That's of claims, that, you know, there are lots of claims everyone's made about, about calcium. Yeah. And this is really the first company that I've seen that they can show the proof. And even better, I don't use this technology yet, and I'm, I'm looking and trying to incorporate it into my mm-hmm. practice because of the imaging that you get, but OCT shows uh, those cracks mm. in the calcium brilliantly. And that's been really, uh, again, one of the more exciting aspects of kind of that advanced imaging is, uh, is seeing the proof in the pudding. Yeah, that's right. I mean, OCT, I, I agree too. I haven't used that in my practice. Is I see those cool orange <laughs> colors that, <laughs> right. you know, look like astronomy pictures sometimes, you know, uh, a black hole or something, but cardiologists know, use it very, you know, some use it very frequently and, and it is a nice new frontier uh, that we can use. Now, do you, when you're using um, these balloons, I mean, you, you're seeing the, when you see your angioplasty, you're seeing basically the, the, the stenosis or something resolve pretty easily after a few pulses. Right. So what I, what I like to do, uh, again, right now in the process of development of Shockwave, uh, you know, the, the price is something that is a realistic concern, both in the outpatient OBL setting. And you mentioned price conscious, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So in the hospital setting as well. And so, or, uh, or I'm sorry, a setup treatment with atherectomy or balloon angioplasty. Now, the question is, whenever that balloon, we do an insufflation and we take that up to four to six uh, atmospheres, we have to really understand that this is a, an important device to address a very specific problem. Our algorithm to avoid this, uh, avoid kind of overuse, is we go in with, uh, we'll do our, our definitive treatment for this atherectomy. What are we getting as far as uh, balloon dilatation? Oftentimes with uh, 270 and 360 rings of calcium, you'll kind of get that napkin ring appearance. You won't get expansion. And yeah. even with yeah. higher uh, atmospheric pressures or uh, increased millimeters of mercury, you don't see that balloon expand in that particular area. My next step in the algorithm, I actually will go with a shorter balloon. I'll land, uh, I'll take the, the shoulder of the balloon and put it in that area. You know, I, I think the, okay. the, the amount of energy that's delivered at the shoulders of the balloon that's is the different. the shoulder, not the mid, not the mid. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Sometimes I can actually get the, that calcified area to, to crack as well. It's when I get failure in those two things that I then go to shockwave. And I've seen almost invariably that with very low pressures, uh, you know, two to four, you can actually start to see with the increased level of pulses, you see the balloon start to give way. You see the vessel start to give way and you can, you can see the, the real time, uh, luminal gain. That's and cool. I'll tell you the first couple of times you see it. It's, uh, it's a sight to behold because that's an area that otherwise wouldn't, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to dilate. Uh, yeah. but again, with this new technology, you can certainly see a difference. The, um, it's almost like you're describing instead of a wire escalation technique, you're, you're describing a balloon escalation or angioplasty escalation technique. Cause we have these new devices, you know, do you ever, do you utilize scoring balloons or cut, like uh, any of those as well in this segment? No, you know, that's a great question. Uh, the scoring balloons, those specialty balloons, uh, do quite well. 
you may or may not know, but I was one of the biggest users of uh, a, a particular balloon that had, uh, I believe it was pillows and crevices that, and it worked right. quite well in these situations when we didn't have yeah, this. What, um, the, yeah, the chocolate balloon or, or chocolate, right? Balloon. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, I like to joke because I'm I'm kind of chocolate. I was I was Doctor <laughs> Chocolate. So oh, you know, you that's put, good. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know, those balloons uh, worked. Uh, they worked well. The the one thing uh, that may have been a little bit disappointing to me was just in spending that much for a, a, a balloon. Yeah. You didn't get the primary, you know, I'm always looking for primary patency. It's not a definitive treatment. You have to do something else, whether again, it's drug eluding, uh, balloon or drug coated balloon or scaffolding. You had to do something extra to be able to get that luminal gain. And in truly heavily calcified lesions, where it was a na again, that napkin ring, fairly thick, 270, 360 calcified disease. I didn't see that I was getting, making much of a difference until I started using, uh, you know, shockwave a couple, probably, uh, a year or two ago. That's great. I mean, it's it's always nice to have these new technologies to aid us in these problems that we deal with all the time. Now, are you using, uh, there's a frequent question, do you need to use an embolic filter device for any of these escalated strategies you're saying, whether it's a scoring balloon, atherectomy, or, and or shockwave? You know, that that's another outstanding question. And no. So in my practice, I tend to steer away from devices that are going to shower disease. And okay. I've been fortunate in, you know, the several, whether it's atherectomy devices, but especially with, uh, with intravascular lithotripsy, the need for embolic protection is, uh, is low. Uh, and I've not, I've, I can't say that I've ever used a, a, a filter wire to perform an intervention. Now, maybe I've been lucky or maybe I need to knock on wood, but I think, mm -hmm. you know, having a slow and deliberate process to do, uh, to do yeah. these cases and then, you know, uh, choosing the appropriate device. Uh, I think I, I just showed a case that, uh, uh, that I did not long ago. And, you know, in this particular lesion, it was, it looked like it was calcified in certain areas, but as it turns out on Ivis, there was this large swath of very soft, uh, disease mm. and maybe even some thrombus no. there. Oh, so you can shoot. imagine if yeah. you choose the wrong, uh, wrong device to go through that, it's a, you've turned a two hour case into a five hour case. And so, <laughs> you know, understanding yes, what the vessel that. architecture looks like, you and me both, I think <laughs> all the guys that do a lot of this stuff have had this happen before. So we, hopefully we learn from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, so that's great. So you, you found these devices that are doing less, um, you know, causing less distal emboli. What about causing, do you feel that IVL might be, um, causing less dissection? I, I know it's really hard to know. But that, that's one of the claims is, is that there's less dissection because of low atmospheres. Is that you feel that you're seeing that or you might still see the dissections, but you've at least got the luminal gain? I, I would say this. One of the most important things that we all have to keep in mind whenever we're treating, uh, treating blood vessels. If you take a balloon to that blood vessel and you stretch it, by the very nature and physics of doing so, you're going to cause injury to the intima. Yeah. And I would agree that if you take a... In a six millimeter vessel, if you take a seven millimeter balloon and inflate it to 20 atmospheres, you may rupture the vessel, but in all likelihood, you're going to cause a pretty significant and probably flow limiting dissection in that area. So as we get more gentle with our insufflations and we lower the amount of atmospheric, uh, amount of pressure that we're delivering to the vessel wall, we minimize the, the amount of uh, dissections that occur. However, the idea of eliminating those dissections is, uh, I have not seen that. And again, with maybe with arteriography, if you don't look really closely, yeah, you don't necessarily appreciate that. But anytime you're touching that vessel wall and you're stretching that vessel wall, you're going to cause breaks in the intima. I'll say with that, again, that l delivering low, low pressure 
in addition to those focal, the focal energies delivered to the vessel wall, it does minimize the amount of dissections. However, in, in all truthfulness, you still are causing, uh, that, you know, you, you may minimize them, but you're still causing dissections in those areas. Got it. When do you decide, and this is an important question for you because you have both sides of this. I mean, there's a calcific lesion, you're doing all this. Is it, is it taking the need for bypass, a surgical open bypass? Is there less of a need or is there still as much of a need? This is, is a loaded question, but if you, what I'm trying to get to is we're having all these endovascular, you know, techniques that are helping us be successful for otherwise cases that would have not been. What, what do you think about that as far as the open and now this new endovascular space? That's an outstanding question and, and something that I've debated. And it, it's one of the reasons, you know, there's a, a particular vascular surgeon I talk about all the time uh, who I look up to a lot. And one of the things that, that I've always been able to take away from, from him is, you know, this idea that open bypass uh, is a tried and true method, okay? Yep. And when you have vein, when it comes to the lower extremity, if you've got a target, there is not much else that is going to do a better job from a patency standpoint. Mm-hmm. However, the reality is our patients are getting older. The, the disease processes are becoming more complex, and we're starting to address those in a more regular fashion. Many of these patients that, that we're doing tibial bypasses on, when they have lead pipes or when you're going down to the pedal vessels and they don't have a, a really great target to be able to sew into, that makes that, that operation, you know, there, there are failures there. There are cases that I've spent three or four hours in and you know, you can't get a needle to go through the tissue. You have to do, you know, you have to crunch the tissue with, uh, with a hemostat to be able to get uh, a needle to get through it. So the reality is that there are some scenarios where open, uh, operation is not ideal. And the pioneer work that's been done to address lower extremity disease and to address, address the pedal arch, uh, all these things are extremely important in continuing to offer patients more options when it comes to, to treatment. So as a vascular surgeon, sure, is my bias to, to be able to perform bypass? Is that an important aspect of, of, of patient care and something that we should be able to offer to our patients? 100%. In that same vein, if you will, uh, I think it's important to, to continue to push the envelope and look for opportunities where we can treat patients in a less invasive fashion and be able to still get a decent and durable result. You know, as you know, durability is one of our, our, our biggest problems. And it's one of the things, you know, from a vascular surgery standpoint, we love to, to talk about that. When you do a fem pop bypass or a fem below the knee popliteal bypass with a good uh, reversed vein, you're looking at 10 years, 10, 12 years. And sometimes I've got some older partners that have done bypasses on folks, and I don't know what kind of magic these dudes do. Uh, when they're operating, but those are 15, 20, 25 years old and they're still wide open. And so that, you know, it's, it's an, it's an interesting concept, but I'm also, I'm, I'm forward thinking. I'd like to think, you know, back in the day, we only did open cholecystectomies. And I remember, never forget one of the, one of the minimally basic surgeons, Scott Melvin, who I thought was the most technically gifted person, amazing person I ever worked with. I'll never forget when he, uh, he was telling me the story about, you know, he's doing open cholecystectomy and then someone talks about being able to take it out, uh, minimally invasively. And he goes, yeah, that'll never work. And then <laughs> what is it? Three years later, he's one of the leading minimally invasive specialists in doing these types of interventions. And he just kind of laughs at himself. He's like, I was completely wrong about it, but he wasn't too dogmatic to say, you know what, I'm, this is my opinion. 
I'm wrong about it. I'm going to switch gears and make some adjustments. And so he was able to obviously get on that train soon enough and help to actually pioneer some of those uh, different procedures. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you have to keep an open mind and you are definitely pioneering a ton of stuff in the PAD and, and all spaces. So thank you so much. Uh, this was, oh, this yeah. was awesome. Just having you and, and I learned a ton right now, just, just talking to you. So I hope, I know our listeners will totally appreciate this episode. So thank you, Brian. Thanks for oh, having, being on. Listen, brother, <laughs> it is always an honor. Uh, you guys are just doing, you know, speaking of pioneering, this is, uh, one of the most forward thinking podcasts that's on the market. And I just appreciate the multidisciplinary efforts you guys are doing. This stuff is cutting edge and I look for, you know, I've listened to most of the back table episodes uh, <laughs> and I plan on getting through all of them and I always rock my swag. I know this isn't video yeah. as well, but I, uh, you know, I always enjoy what you guys, uh, the, the quality content you're putting out there. And again, look forward to, to the next time of being on the show. Oh, it'll be soon for sure. Thank you so much. And look forward to hanging out in person soon too, Brian, for sure. All right, brother. Listen, you take care. Enjoy that California weather. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Vivek Prasad. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.